Today's reading is from the Good News According to Matthew, chapter 3, and can be found on page 967, page 967, chapter 3 of the Gospel of Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering up his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Can I just add uh, my welcome to you, particularly if you're visiting with us uh, this morning. It's great to have you with us. You join us if you are visiting or you uh, uh, haven't been here for the, uh, a few weeks uh, as we start a series through Matthew's Gospel. That's what we're uh, looking at. We're following a journey in Matthew's Gospel and Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. Uh, Matthew was one of Jesus' first followers. Uh, he has been determined to introduce Jesus as that Messiah, as that Christ, as, as the King who has been long promised by God. And, uh, and as we've, those of you who have been here, we've seen uh, that um, first off from the off, he says that Jesus is the King. He's the King, so look at his lineage. Chapter 1, that's what we saw in chapter 1. He's the King, look at how he was born, look at his birth, that's chapter 2. Slightly unusual, but he's the King. He's the king. Look at how he fulfilled all the stuff that was said about him in the Old Testament. That's still in chapter 2. And now today, Matthew is saying he's the king. Look how his reign is announced. Look how it's announced and his public ministry begins. Because out of nowhere, this chap called John the Baptist bursts onto the scene. 
And like a herald, he is telling anyone who will listen, the king's kingdom is nearly here. It's nearly here. It's near. There's something to do to get ready for this kingdom. Now, next week, we'll get the official launch event of King Jesus' earthly ministry. That's his baptism. That comes next week. But these few verses that we're looking at this morning are here, and they're all asking a question. And the question is this. Are the people ready for the king? Are the people ready for the king? And by extension, we need to ask ourselves the same question as we go. Are we ready for the king? Are we prepared to be followers of King Jesus? So let's ask for the Lord's help that we would be this morning. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for Matthew's gospel. And we ask this morning that you would speak clearly to each one of us in this place, through this word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Mike uh, vividly reminded us last week, the world is a dark place, isn't it? Sometimes in history, that truth that the world is a dark place is more obvious than at other times. It feels like one of those moments right now, doesn't it? Sometimes that false veneer of security and comfort and plenty and entertainment... That false veneer of control, that just gets stripped away. I'm conscious that even as I say that, it's a very affluent and Western thing to observe, of course. You know, most of the world's population today, most of the world's population throughout history, in fact, has, um, you know, knows nothing about the privilege that we know, the luxury, the safety that, frankly, we here in in cosy, cosy Hartford take for granted. Nevertheless, our world feels increasingly dark, doesn't it? The word crisis is often um, overused, but many sense an international political fragility that we've not witnessed for many years. I was reading this week how the media is speculating is now a 1914 moment. Will the crisis in the Middle East spiral out of control? But it's not just wars and rumours of wars. There are self-serving politicians and leaders. There are abusers and manipulators getting away with it. There's bitter division in our society and communities. There is the fear, a fear of so many things, fear of where artificial intelligence will lead us, the fear of the damage we're doing to our environment, fear of sickness, and so on and so on. Where will it all end? But lest we think it's all out there, we need to remember that most of these things are merely but the outworkings of our own human hearts. Or the signs of living in a a fallen world that's dislocated from God. All of this negativity, this misery, this death, this pain, this loss, this conflict, they all flow out of our hearts. And Matthew's account of Jesus' life is going to go on and reveal some searing analysis of the bankrupt and desperate position of the human heart. But for now, we need to settle for two headlines as the king's reign is announced. Matthew sets out these two headlines. Firstly, he says, repent. Repent, he says, you are not the kings you think you are. And secondly, Jesus is the only king you need. 
Repent. You're not the kings you think you are. You are not in control of your own life. Let alone everything else that's going on around you and scaring you. Repent. You're not the kings you thought you were. And secondly, Jesus is the only king you need. Firstly then, repent. You're not the kings you think you are. Turn back with me to page 967, if you will, to the church Bibles. That'll get you to Matthew 3. Page 967. It's important you follow me through. And uh, know that I'm not just making this stuff up, that this is what God's word actually says. Page 967 and verse 1 of chapter 3. So you'll see the big three, and we're going to read the first uh, uh, few verses uh, um, that follow from there. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea. Those days, those days. Let's just stop, pause for a moment. In those days. That most likely refers to the, to the previous verse. Uh, if you look at, back up just to verse 23, uh, you'll see that Jesus went and lived in a town called Nazareth. Nazareth, in those days, so basically what this is, verse is saying is, is in those days when Jesus was in Nazareth. Matthew isn't much concerned, actually, with the exact timings. He's not too worried about that. But we know from the other Gospels that John the Baptist's arrival on the scene is about 30 years after most of the events that happen in the first part of chapter 2. So we're about 30 years later. Jesus is in Nazareth. Here comes John. Now, there are many Johns in Scripture. <laughs> it's a popular name. Here we are in St. John's. I'm John. Not... But there we go. Uh, it was a common name. It is a common name. And so just so we don't get confused, Matthew gives this John a suffix. The Baptist. John the Baptist. Now... I don't want to um, you know, question God's word, but in some ways it's an unfortunate designator. Yes, it describes what he did, baptize, but it doesn't quite capture his role completely, or, or perhaps more accurately, his message. Therefore, Matthew explains what we're supposed to understand by this term Baptist. Let's go again. In those days, the days of Jesus in Nazareth, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea, saying, repent... The kingdom of God is near. This is what, what uh, was spoken of through, this is he who, um, who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the, desert, in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Verse 4, John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt round his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Ah, Matthew wants his readers to know that this John, this John the baptizer, was actually a prophet, announcing a vital message that the people needed to get ready. They needed to prepare for the king. Repent, you're not the kings you think you are. The real kingdom is near, very near. So, when we read about John the baptizer, we need to remember two Ps, okay? He was a preparing prophet. A prophet with a message of preparation. Now, to any self-respecting Jew, this would have been obvious. Matthew's description of John's clothes, his diet, his location, where he was, would immediately have drawn comparison with probably the greatest Old Testament prophet, Elijah. That's what they would have thought. It's a bit like if I described to you a bearded man with a hooded cloak, covered in a hooded cloak, with a lightsaber just dangling down at his waist, most of you would immediately kind of think, Jedi Knight, right? Some of you wouldn't. 
But you'd get that picture. If I was dressed like that now, you'd think John's trying to be a Jedi Knight. So for those in the know, and I know not everybody is in the know, but for those in the know, certain descriptions immediately evoke certain types of people. And this description of John the Baptist would immediately have suggested prophet to the Jews. And furthermore, those self-respecting Jews knew that before, God, um, uh, that before God's long-promised king arrived, according to the Old Testament, God had also promised to send first a prophet. And by the time John the Baptist rocks up, it's been almost 400 years since the last prophet. Prophets are rare in scripture. They come at significant moments in God's redemptive plan. And they are weird. They're weird. They're not normal. They say slightly awkward, embarrassing things. You wouldn't really want to invite them back for a cup of tea. They say things to disturb the comfortable. They say things to upset the status quo. But that's their job. That's what they were supposed to do, to disturb the comfortable who think that they are in control and that they are kings and masters of their own lives. So make no mistake, John is way more prophet than he is just mere baptizer. He is that, but he's a prophet too. And what was his prophetic message? Verse 2, the king's kingdom is nearly here and you've got to get ready. How do you get ready? Repent. Repent. Repentance is very much the central message of Christianity. There is no true expression of the Christian faith without repentance. John, the preparing prophet, says, repent, the kingdom is near. Jesus, the king, says, repent, the kingdom is here, because he's, he's arrived. Paul declares, turn to God in repentance and faith. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot be a true follower of Jesus without repentance. The word here in this passage is repeated three times, just in these, in these 12 verses. And so if repentance is so important and so central and so key, we better be clear we know what it means, right? We better be clear on it. So what is it? And what does it look like in practice? Literally, the, the word that's used in the original language is metanoia, and it means to, to change one's mind. And, and it's associated with a sense of feeling regret or remorse at something. That's what it is. It is to express sorrow and change. But the New Testament nearly always uses this word in association with a change of lifestyle. And in that sense, it's much closer to the Old Testament understanding of the word, which was to change one's mind and turn back to God. And so here... In John 3, we see that repentance is associated, if you look at verse 6, with confession of sin. And, in verse 8, fruit, in keeping with that. In other words, the biblical understanding of repentance is primarily about a change of mind 
and sorrow at that that results in a change of action. It's about changing from living for yourself and thinking that you are the king and the master of your life and realising that you're not. That God is king. And that you need to change some things in response to that truth. That God is king. It's a change of direction. Repent. You're not the kings you think you are. American Bible scholar Ben Shaw provides this helpful illustration. He suggests imagining repentance as a man walking in one direction who suddenly realises that he's walking in the opposite direction from what he should be walking. And he stops, he turns around, and he begins walking in the other direction. In one sense, it's a relatively quick and simple process, changing directions. But then he says, imagine somebody on a bike, realising that they're going in the wrong one direction. In one sense, it's still obvious, they're still going in the wrong direction. They've got to stop, they've got to turn around with the bike, and then they've got to get off in the new direction. But it's a slightly longer process than if I'm just walking. Then he says, now imagine a man in a car. You're driving in your car. The process is still the same, you realise you're going in the wrong direction, but it takes longer than it does for the man on the bike. And the man who's just walking. And you may be required to go in a different direction first. To get back onto the road that you need to turn around on in your car. And then he says, imagine that a man is piloting a super tanker at sea. It takes him miles to slow that ship down. And and, and miles to slow it down so that it's safe enough to begin turning. And then the turn seems to go on forever. And it takes him quite a distance away from the intended course. And then again, it takes a, lot, you know, a long amount of time to get back up to speed and go, get going again in the new direction. See what he's saying? I think they're great illustrations. Some sins are small and, and they're relatively easy to repent from, aren't they? We can stop, we, oh yep, and I can walk in the other way, and, and I, yep, that was wrong, I'm sorry, and we move on. Some sins are a little bit more difficult. And God takes time a little bit more time to bring us to our senses. And there's more involved in changing direction. It's just not quite as simple as turning on a sixpence. And some sins are enormous. We may not be, even be aware that they really are an affront to God. Or maybe they're so deeply ingrained in us that we are not willing at first to even recognize them as sin. But God works patiently. He's slowing us down. He's making sure that we can turn safely, just like the captain of that ship, so that he can get it going again in a new direction. Friends, God rarely works repentance in his people instantaneously. The awareness of sin and the desire to change come gradually. There may be many slip-ups. Turning from some sin may take a lifetime. Sometimes it may feel like you're dead in the water. You're neither tracking in one direction or the other and you're making little progress. But God is in control. He's doing only what he can do. And he who has begun this work of repentance in you will bring it to completion. So if you are here this morning and you have prayed for repentance for some particular sin and there has been no instantaneous change, keep praying. 
Keep praying. Keep asking for prayer. God has promised to work and he will. And you will be glad in the end that he did it in the manner that he did it in. How many of you have seen the movie The Lion King? Seen The Lion King? I love The Lion King. It's a great movie. There's one song in that movie sung by the king's son, Simba, when he's young. And he's looking forward to the time when he's grown up. Can anyone remember what that song is called? Any? Get in there. Thank you. I just can't wait to be king. And now you can hear the melody in your, in your head, can't you? Little Simba singing that song. Well, in a sense, each one of us is just like Simba. From the moment we're born, we just can't wait to be in control of our own lives. Away from our parents. Away from teachers, away from anyone in authority over us, telling us what to do, including God. We just can't wait to be kings of our own lives. And John the Baptist would say to us, as he proclaimed 2,000 years ago, repent. You're not the kings you think you are. It may take time. It may be quick. But you need to repent. And as we see in this passage, the people respond. The excitement grew. There's revival, it seems. There's revival because there's repentance. That's another biblical fact. True revival is always accompanied by true repentance. There's never any true revival without repentance. Look at verse 5. The people went out from Jerusalem and, uh, and, and Judea and the whole region of the Jordan this is, this is big. They're confessing their sins and they were baptised by John in the Jordan River. Wow, this is new. This is new. Previously, okay, only outsiders, only converts to the Jewish faith were required to be baptised. And then it was just an, uh, it was a symbolic act. Uh, act. It, was, it was self-administered. Nobody baptised anybody. But it was designed to show solidarity and, and to, to sort of identify with the, the new faith that you were embracing because the Jewish people had come through the waters of the Red Sea when they had been rescued by God. So there was baptism, but it was self-administered. But now, even the Jews are being baptised. And it's linked here to confession of sin. I love that today, when we're about to baptise three members of the, of the same family, God has ordained that we think about baptism. And one of the things that we learn here is that baptism is related to the confession of sin and repentance. That's why later I'm going to ask some fairly pointed questions to, to Kenny, uh, and then both to Kenny and Tara and to the godparents. I'm going to ask if they repent of their sins. I'm going to ask if they've changed direction from living for themselves to living for King Jesus and under his lordship. But baptism itself is symbolic. We're not making people Christians when we baptize them. Only God can do that. And in the case of Kenny today, we're baptizing him symbolically after God's effective baptism in him by, his, by the Holy Spirit. Only God has been able to change Kenny's mind. And make him see the things that he now sees. 
But in the case of, of Harry and Grace, we're going to baptise them symbolically in the hope that one day, under their parents and their godparents' guidance, they will come to love and to know and to follow King Jesus for themselves. Therefore, like the Jews in today's passage, we'll baptise them symbolically before what we hope will be their effective baptism when the Holy Spirit does his transforming work in their lives. So, so do you see that, that, that on one level, Christian baptism is just merely a symbolic act? Yes, it's an act of obedience. Christ calls all his followers to be baptised. But nevertheless, it is merely symbolic. That said, <laughs> however, it is symbolic of the most crucially beautiful and deep truths around. For example, the work of conversion and cleansing, it's all God's doing. All God's doing. You can't baptise yourself. Christian baptism is not self-administered. Someone needs to do it for you. It also acknowledges the reality that we're not in charge. That we're not the kings we thought we were. We humble ourselves. We confess sin. We confess all those things that we think we say and do. Where we enthrone ourselves or we enthrone others instead of God. And it's also symbolic of our change of direction and our change of destination. Today, Kenny will declare publicly his repentant heart and we will pray for him as he seeks to continue changing course and living for King Jesus. And John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, the preparing prophet, is still asking today, what about you? What about you? Are you ready? The kingdom is no longer near. The kingdom is here because of Jesus and his Holy Spirit. Will you repent? You're not the king you thought you were. But why? Why? That may be a question that's rising in your mind. You may be here this morning and asking that question, why should I take myself off the throne and ask Jesus to be there instead? Well, the answer to that question is our second main point today. The answer is that Jesus is the only king you need. Jesus is the only king you need. If you keep walking the path where you ignore the rightful kingship of Jesus over your life, then I have to tell you this morning, according to God's word, it doesn't end well. And if you'll permit me to get all prophetic for a moment, by which what I mean is what I said earlier, uh, I need to say some things that will probably make you feel uncomfortable and awkward. But wrath... God's righteous anger is coming. The road ahead is crooked. The axe has been sharpened and is already at your root about to start chopping. The fire is burning. Don't believe me? Take a look for yourself. Verse 7. Look at verse 7. Jesus calls the hypocritical leaders in the Jewish nation, those that are trusting in the wrong things, he calls them a brood of vipers. 
And then he says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? That's John, sorry, I said Jesus, didn't I? I don't know why I said Jesus, it's John that's speaking here. Then he says, verse 10, the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This is extremely vivid imagery that Matthew is using here. He is describing both a spiritual and a physical reality and it's bleak. Maybe just a step back from that bleakness for a moment. Perhaps with Christmas coming, fast approaching, a festive illustration will help. Without Jesus as your king, you're more like a Christmas tree. What's he talking about, you're thinking? Well, just think about it. What do we do to Christmas trees? We cut them down, don't we? We hack them down, we remove them from their life source, from their natural habitat, and we take them inside, all in the name of what? But a Christmas joy. And what do we do with Christmas trees? Even though they're dead, we dress them up. We cover them with lights and decorations and tinsel and all all sorts of things. Even though it's perishing, we cover it with this festive stuff designed to make it look good. We celebrate with family and food and presents around this dead tree. And then what happens? It actually starts to look like it's dying, doesn't it? The needles drop off. It goes brown. What do we do? We hoover the needles up. We pretend it's not happening. We rearrange the decorations and we carry on celebrating. And the tree keeps dying. But at some point it's over. We may be pretending that the tree is not dying and that death isn't there. But at some point it's over. The tree comes down. The decorations come off. And if we take the illustration here, it's chucked on the bonfire. We are all perishing, the Bible says. All mankind is perishing, dead in our sins. However much we may pretend otherwise, we are but Christmas trees waiting for the inevitable. We're lifeless. No future. Cut off from our real natural habitat. Disconnected from the true life source. Friends, this is why Jesus is the only king you need. He is the source of of all life and that's why you need to repent and confess your sins because the bible paints a very bleak picture indeed of an eternity disconnected from the source of all life without repentance now sometimes god speaks of of that future of fire like here sometimes he speaks of it as darkness sometimes it's like being shut out of the feast Sometimes it's like being lost at sea. Sometimes it's described as torment. They're all ways the Bible uses to describe eternal perishing. And if you are here this morning and you've never consciously made that decision to live for Jesus and to follow him as king, can I plead with you today to seriously consider that? To take what is being said in these words seriously. Because you don't want to go on perishing forever. And also to take the lesson here that we hear about the Jewish leaders in in these verses. Please don't think that just because you go to church regularly or occasionally. Or just because you live in a Christian country. Or your parents were Christians. Or somebody once prayed for you. that, That somehow that makes you safe. It doesn't. You're not. 
You must make that decision for yourselves. Every single one of us. Now is the time to repent. You're not the king you thought you were. And judgment is coming. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Oh, but what mercy. What mercy. Jesus is all the king you need. Very briefly, and by way of conclusion, here are four reasons Matthew provides as to why Jesus is all the king you need to avoid eternal punishing, uh, perishing. Firstly, he says he's powerful. Verse 11, after me will come one who is more powerful than I. Who's more powerful than God's prophets? Well, not many people, humanly speaking. But God, God himself will help you. He has got the power. He's powerful. Secondly, Jesus the King will change you. He's powerful enough to transform your mind, your desires, your habits, your attitudes. Again, verse 11, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. God doesn't just change you, but he gives you a gift. He gives you the gift of himself. Now, right now, if you have asked for forgiveness and come to the Lord in repentance asking for his help, he promises it. Not by making things easier, but by giving you himself to make the journey with. And he'll change you in the process. But don't ignore the fire in verse 11. Because thirdly, Jesus is all the king you need. Because he'll purify you. You know, whichever road we're on at the moment whether we're on that road towards God or the one away from him. Whichever road we're on, the Bible says that fire is coming. But don't be alarmed because fire does two things, doesn't it? Yes, it burns up the worthless. Yes, it burns up those things, the wood and the chaff. But what does it do to the precious stuff? What does it do to precious metal? It purifies. We were singing about that earlier. The impurity is removed and what is left is even more glorious than it was in the beginning. That is what awaits all those who have heeded this call to repentance and are trusting in King Jesus. All our impurity will one day be totally removed. And finally, Jesus is all the king you need because only he can forgive you. There is forgiveness For everything. For everything. For all those things that you've done that people know about. For all those things that you've said and thought and done that no one else knows about. He can free you from the guilt. The shame. Maybe regret. Fear, the despair, and the pain. You see, the emphasis on repentance and confession here 
for John the baptizer is all about preparation. He was a preparing prophet, don't forget. But he couldn't do anything about that sin by himself. He couldn't empower a repentant lifestyle on his own. No, he says, the one who comes after me, he can do that. And as we're going to come on to see, as we keep journeying through Matthew's gospel, he'll do that through the cross. Repent. You're not the king you think you are. But Jesus, Jesus, he is all the king you need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are uniquely powerful to change us, to purify us, and to forgive us. Help us to live lives that are in keeping with the repentance you made possible through the cross. And Holy Spirit, I pray uh, maybe there's people here this morning, someone here this morning who has never surrendered their all to Jesus. So please would you prompt them. Please would you meet them in their need whatever it is that they are struggling with or questioning. Please would you encourage them to repent before it's too late. And Lord, for those of us here who have repented, help us to keep coming to you regularly, knowing that although we've turned around and we're tracking in a new direction and we are sure of our destination, that there are still times that we fail to live the way that we want to and the way that you have taught us to. Oh Lord, keep changing us. We know that this is a lifelong process. And Holy Spirit, I pray you would encourage those who are particularly struggling with a sin that they feel is not being addressed or they are struggling to see progress in that. Help us to persevere in prayer as individuals and for each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.